The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show today. Thanks for tuning in. I know this has been a tough year and a half for a lot of people, and there's been a lot of loss and trauma. Maybe you have lost someone to COVID or come close to it. Actually, my own brother's been dealing with COVID, and he got hit pretty hard, and he's in another country right now. He's in Mexico. So that's been really tough for me. I mean, I thought I was going to have to make a flight there and deal with all of this stuff. I I was afraid he might stop breathing. I mean, there's been, you know, a lot of stuff (laughs) that we've been dealing with here, you know, confronting grief and loss uh, over this past year. So if you can relate, you're going to love to stick around for this next hour because we're going to be talking about dealing with these kind of things, with death, with grief, these difficult conversations that are really important to have. So my guest today is trying to tackle how to deal with grief and trauma head on. Susan Hannafin McNabb is a social worker and educator who has come up with a really practical guide to help people navigate grief and trauma. The A to Z healing toolbox is filled with an entire alphabet's worth of proven practical techniques to help you on your healing journey. And I've been spending a lot of time over the past couple of days here working my way through this. I'm really enjoying it. So Susan, welcome to the show. I'm really glad that we could talk about this. Thank you for inviting me, Diane. I really appreciate being here. You're so needed. It's been a hell of a a couple of years, you know, for all of us. And we're all dealing with with things in our own way. And um, just the information that you share in the book, I think is is so needed. So I'm so glad that we could talk about it. And you came to this work through really personal experience after losing your husband unexpectedly, you were only 41 years old at the time with a five-year-old son. I mean, this kind of experience, I always say, just changes you in your DNA, right? I mean, just there's before and there's after. And and really what your book is doing is helping people navigate the after. And and how did you start to move through this yourself and and tackle your grief? I mean, you share it so beautifully in the book. What were those steps like in the beginning? Oh, boy. Well, the beginning is always tough, right? The beginning of any new journey, especially when there's grief and trauma involved. But I'll back up a minute and just say that I was a social worker and an educator for 25 years before my husband died suddenly. So although I didn't know it at the time, I did have some tools in my toolbox Um, And the one that I just immediately gravitated toward was something that I've been doing for other people my entire career, which is helping connect them with resources. And so eventually what I did was, you know, this was really for my son. I, I didn't care at the time to keep going myself, but I knew I needed to give this child a life. So one foot, one foot in front of the other, one step at a time, I started gathering resources here in San Diego where I live. And um, all I knew how to do was 
gather people and gather resources and just lean into the unknowingness and the awfulness of my new experience. And, um, and so it was partially my social worker self that started the ball rolling in just running after resources and trying to connect. Because you saw that there was really a void for this. Is that right? In, in your own looking for help, you saw there, there wasn't a lot of, you know, cohesive information together in one place. Exactly. Well, in graduate school, I remember doing a unit on grief. And when this own personal experience happened to me, I went into my garage, I pulled out that file, because back in the day, it was all paper, right? And I threw the entire file in a trash can. It meant nothing because I hadn't moved through it. And then I really felt like information was kind of scattered. Should I go to a hospice group? Well, I don't know because my experience wasn't a hospice experience. Where are the people to help? You know, which books should I use? It was really just kind of scattered. And, um, and that's why when I did wind up putting this book together very accidentally, um, I wanted it to be a plethora of resources for everyone right in one place. Well, I love how it's set up and that you invite people to really start on any chapter. They could start from A and go to Z, or they could start at Z. And it's very freeing. You know, they can kind of skip around to whatever is meaningful for them on that day. And that was pretty deliberate, right? To, to set it up in that way. Yes. You know, this book came to be because I went to a conference called Camp Widow, which is never a place I wanted to be, run by Soaring Spirits International. And I went as a camper or attendee for one year. And then the second year I went back as a presenter. And I just gathered all of these resources that I had been using in the community. And I had to alphabetize them because that's the teacher part of me. So my binder, my personal binder became A, animals, B, breathwork, C, counseling. But really, there was no rhyme or reason for any, um, you know, any running after I did in San Diego. I was all over the map. I didn't start in one place and then went specifically to another. It was just let me grab everything I can. So when this group of uh, attendees at the conference said, where did you get this information and you need to put this into a book? I said, well, first of all, no, thanks. I, I'm not interested in being an author. But then when I got real with that, I really wanted to make it accessible and ordered because the grief and traumatized brain cannot handle much at one time. And I wanted people to choose whatever tools called to them first and then move to another. Um, there's really, it's whatever works for you at that time. Right. I think that's so valuable. You know what I've, I've been really interested or just what I've noticed, interested in seeing is just how different people react or are, I mean, I know you can never really be prepared for a sudden event that happened like, like in your case, but generally we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about grief. I'm, I'm thinking specifically like a good friend of mine when her mother was, was really sick and it was obvious, you know, things were not going to end well. 
she didn't really want to accept it or they hadn't had those conversations about what to do. And my, my own situation was so different where my mother was a teacher her whole life and she was very organized. And so she had everything in folders. (laughs) This is (laughs) what you, this is what you do, you know, and go here and do this. And, and I just see the, I see the difference. And that's why um, I'm so happy that you've put this out. I think it's so valuable because my experience was so different from my good friend who just seemed, she was so blindsided and so unprepared, even though her, her mother was older and it was kind of going to be an ex- expected. Um, I, I think that's, it's just interesting. I mean, do you see that in people that you work with? Like they're just so blindsided that, you know, they're not even prepared for this event that's going to happen. Oh, yes, yes. And many of the people I work with are young widowed people. So 20s, 30s, 40s, this was the last thing on their mind. Uh, You know, they're in the middle of having children, or thinking about having children, or creating a life with their spouse or partner. And then all of a sudden, what just happened? So whether it's sudden death, um, suicide, or a car accident, motorcycle accident, or a long-term illness where there's hope, hope, hope until there isn't any, um, people are very unprepared. And I think our culture in general, the Western world, does a great disservice to all of us not talking about grief more. And now that we have this global pandemic, people are being forced to talk about it more. Doesn't mean everyone's getting their affairs in order, but I think the conversation is now more on the table now more than ever. Right. There's definitely more of of a spotlight on this. My favorite part of the book is all the healing stories. And as I'm reading through it, I find myself kind of skipping over so I can get to the stories. (laughs) Yes. I, I like that. And how did you gather these? Were these through groups and workshops? Well, interestingly enough, um, I had the social worker pieces of the book together first, the why. Why does meditation help us? Why does exercise promote um, health and wellness, especially in grieving people? Um, and the I used a self-publishing company to help publish the book. And they said, you know, we need, the reader needs more than just the social worky bits. We need stories your story. And I thought, well, I don't want it to just be my story. I want other people's stories. And so the folks, there are 90 plus little paragraphs in the book for each healing tool. And these are people from Soaring Spirits International, the global widowed community that I got involved with. These are people that are bereaved parents that I met Um, locally in San Diego and through Facebook pages. Um, These are family members. Um, Just people came out and we really wanted to share their story of how a particular healing tool helped them after their child died, um, after their cancer diagnosis, after their spouse died. And I'm eternally grateful to all of those people who donated stories because that connects all of us, our stories. It does. And that, um, like I said, that's my favorite part of reading through the book is to relate to what other people have gone through to learn from their experiences. And I found some commonalities in what people did and how I handled grief in my own life. 
I mean, I, I remember when, when my mother passed and I had this, uh, and you talk about music in the book and, and we can, we can talk about that where I, I had this, uh, thing I would play on loop over and over. And it was just like, uh, ohm sounds. Mm. It was this Stephen Halpern, who was a guy that does a, a ton of meditation music and he has for years, but it's just kind of this ohm. It was this like droning ohm sound. For some reason, it just brought me so much comfort. I would listen to it in the car and kind of zone out, you know, for right. a minute, but I found it comforting. Um, and I like that you brought up music in the book. I mean, I think that could be very healing. You know, when people, when I read those stories, I kind of connected it, you know, with my own experiences. Right. You know, it's interesting you bring up music because uh, my husband, my late husband, Brent, was a professor by trade, but a musician as well on the side. And he played the bagpipes, which is a very loud instrument, uh, guitar, different types of flutes. There was music around all the time. And after he died, I could not handle any music at all. I couldn't listen to the radio. I mean, it just really sent me over the edge. So I couldn't do music for a couple of years. Meanwhile, a good friend of mine who, whose husband died um, of a gunshot wound, she is a professional, she's a physician, but on the side, she's also a flautist. And the thing that helped her most, and her stories in the book as well, is music. She would sit with Beethoven, with Bach, with, with her music, and just play and play and play on her own instrument and hearing those of others. And that is what got her through. So another reason I wanted to include 26 tools in this book is because we are all different. Different things will help us at different times. And, um, and we all have different stories. Right. And I think everyone will find a tool or something that will help in their own healing journey, whatever they're dealing with. But you're right. It is so individual, isn't it? Like, like fingerprints. I mean, no two ways people deal with things will be the same. Exactly. I love your analogy of fingerprints because yes, we're all human, but yes, we all have a different fingerprint. And so, yes, we all have a story of losing someone but the story of how we got here is different. And then the story of how we are choosing to heal is different. Um, and that's a whole conversation too, how we choose to heal. I could not contain any of my grief or trauma. It all spilled out and I had to keep moving through it and with it. But I've met many people who two years later, four years later, 12 years later have said, okay, I boxed it up. I ran and ran. I traveled the world. I kept busy. I, I raised my kids and was the room parent for 15 years. And now I'm ready. And so really, there is no timeline for grief. I'm sure that you also believe that, you know, we should get way more than two weeks off of work and 365 days to grieve because this is, this is an ongoing, an ongoing journey. Right. Yeah. I, I really, I'm always amazed where you see people tell you, you know, suck it up. You get three days to do this and yeah, it's an ongoing process. However long it takes, however long it takes, you know, like you said, there's people that will box it up and then maybe something will trigger it. I read a story um, from Jan Van Zant 
Um, I'm sure you're from, I don't know if yes. you're familiar with her. <laughs> yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Written lots of books. And she describes after she lost her daughter, where she would try to kind of box it up. And then at one moment in the grocery store, she just like lost it over the broccoli. You yes. Know? And oh, yes. something will, will just trigger you and then it'll come out. And it's just, I think it's so important for people to understand you can't push that down, right? You can't box it up. Right. Well, I've met people that have done a darn good job of doing that. Um, I actually, the first camp widow I went to, I sat there in a room with probably 200 people. And I forgot what the question was, but this man stood up and he said, hi, my name's Mike. My wife died 10 years ago and I'm not, I, I wasn't ready. And I raised my sons and I've avoided this and ignored it. And now I'm ready, you know, 10 years later. So he did a pretty good job. Um, I don't know what was happening physically with him, right? Because grief is so, um, it doesn't leave us unchanged, right? Most of us are changed behaviorally, socially, spiritually, physically, mentally, in some capacity. And, um, and so I, I think it's important to, at some point, whatever point that is for people to start the process. So you're not hysterical over the broccoli for the rest of your life. Right, right. I wanted to ask you about, I thought it was interesting in the book, you said you had complete misinformation about the term grief. And I was hoping maybe you could explain a little, explain a little bit, you know, maybe your definition or the difference between grief and trauma. Sure. So the misinformation I had was basically no information. I was 41 at the time that my husband died. My grandparents were alive until they were in their 80s or 90s. My family members, all of my friends, I, I had no experience with grief or trauma. And, um, and so I was really pushed into the deep end without any raft, any floaties, any anything. <laughs> and, um, and so what my vision of grief was, well, you know, when you die at age 95, the people who are left here will be sad and miss you. That was it. I mean, it was a very immature way to look at grief, even though I studied it in graduate school, right? My personal experience was I didn't have any. I had nothing. So when we all die at the age of 95, you know, people will be sad or we will be sad. And that's what grief was to me. What I know now is that grief affects us in so many ways. And um, I wanted to make that available to people through the book. So there are 26 chapters A to Z of the healing tools. But the first two chapters are on grief and trauma. So grief, what is it? What are some of the common grief reactions in adults? And then trauma, what is it? And what are some of the common trauma reactions in adults? And um, in each chapter, I have a, a chart that lists, you know, maybe 40 common reactions to grief. And they're in the categories of physical reactions. So that could be upset stomach, low energy, shortness of breath, agitation. Another category is emotional right? Um, anger, emptiness, sometimes relief, irritability, lots of those emotional reactions um, with grief. Then we have behavioral, 
which is the crying over the broccoli, sobbing, wailing, I would go into my walk-in closet, shut the door and scream, yell, cry. I mean, it, I was a hot mess. And, and that is part of grief. And then the other three um, reaction areas are mental. So maybe denial or disbelief, uh, difficulty concentrating spiritual. And this is a category that most people don't think about, but I was rocked spiritually. This could be having many questions about the afterlife, questions about your your religion or your faith. Um, And then socially is the last category. Um, And this is something I talk about with folks very often, that often our address book can change when someone dies. Um, and that is very hard to navigate the social changes on top of what you're already dealing with. That's a whole topic in itself. I mean, as I was reading that um, in the chapter of, you know, your your new normal, your your new friends, your new life. I mean, that that's got to be so difficult to navigate, you know, like as a couple. I mean, what happens then? Friends that you had together, do those friendships live? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. And and I guess that's okay, right? If you have to let some things go. Right. I think for most people I work with, letting friendships go or letting them change feels like another loss on top of all the other layers of secondary losses. And that's something too that I think um, we in our culture don't take notice of enough. Um, It's, okay, well, the person died. That's the loss. Well, I'm sorry, that person, my husband, let's take him, for example, he was the guy that did the taxes, the guy who shuffled my our five-year-old son around, the guy who barbecued every night. I mean, there were many, many roles that he fulfilled, you know, this, the, in, the major income earner, all of that goes away. So all of those are secondary losses that shift. And then on top of that, you've got... Um, for the bereaved parent community, right? Their child has died. Then they get to watch their friends' children get their driver's licenses and go to college and get married. And it's very, very hard to navigate the social changes that happen after a death. And friendships changing and and morphing. I mean, I guess you, that happens naturally through life anyway. I mean, I've had you know friendships that will ebb and flow, and and I think that's okay. Uh, but in 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 this situation, yeah, like you're saying, it's kind of kind of compounding the grief even more. Yes, yes, it does. And and I think also one thing that has helped me in my own healing and the work I do with others is really reframing any event that I can. So let's take a friendship. You know, I will reframe and say, okay, well, how many of you have the same friends that you had in elementary school? in high school, in college, you know, friendships do ebb and flow over time. It just feels more heavy and exacerbated when someone dies, because that's your current life, right? But I think reframing is very important for the healing process as well. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, if people can keep friendships for long periods of time, that's great. (laughs) You know, sometimes uh, that doesn't always happen. So we've got just a couple of minutes uh, to our break. And I just wanted to say what or ask, what was the most surprising thing or worst thing that you think was said to you 
after your husband's death? Oh my goodness. Well, this one takes the cake. I was uh, at the gym and I write about this in the book under chapter K, which is knowing your new environment. Um, I was at the gym, which was a difficult place to be because I have always loved the gym. I met my husband at the gym. It was a refuge for me. And then after my husband died, I could I could see people kind of looking and, and staring and just I was getting unwanted attention. But no one was saying everything anything because there's the pink elephant in the room, right? Everyone sees the pink elephant, yet no one's coming up to me and saying, I see that pink elephant. How are you doing? Um, so I'm standing in line at the shower to get a shower at the gym, half naked, my gym bag in hand, and this woman comes up behind me. Uh, minimal social skills, I will say, and just peppers me with questions. What happened? What, what did, you know, where did they find the car? What is, what are you going to tell your son? He's only five. I mean, peppering me with questions about the accident, about what I'm going to do next. I mean, this was a month after Brent died. And I, I wrote this in the book that I simultaneously had three thoughts. You know, number one, I'm going to punch her. Number two, I need to find a new gym. And number three, I need to find a new hairdresser, a new grocery store, new friends. I need new everything until I realized I didn't need new everything, but I did change some things in my life. And um, one of those things was to avoid people that had minimal social skills. Right. And just asking someone, you know, pounding them with questions. Would you say like probably the best thing to say or do is, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm here if you need me. Yes, because they will need you. Um, the other thing I, I tell people often, if they're supporting someone who is grieving, to just show up without even asking or saying, what do you need? Because we don't know. We are deep in grief, deep in trauma sometimes. We, don't, we can't even think our way out of a paper bag. So if your neighbor is grieving, go cut the lawn, you know, go offer to bring a meal every Monday. Um, keep showing up for people. We, we don't know often what it is we need. If someone has children, offer to help drive the kids um, and keep showing up really because two years later, five years later, they're still, that person is still dead, right? I mean, it sounds really crass, but I say to people, hey, this is nine years later. Brent's still not here. I'm still raising a child. I still need help. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back talking with Susan Hannafin McNabb. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Thanks for coming back. I'm talking with Susan Hannafin McNabb about her amazing collection of information here The A to Z Healing Toolbox, a practical guide for navigating grief and trauma with intention. And Susan's sharing some great information here. You can find out about the book if you visit a the number two z healingtoolbox.com. 
And is that the best place to go? That is the best place to go to reach me or find out what's going on in the world of A to Z Healing Toolbox. Um, if people would like to buy a book, they can do that through their website, also on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, really anywhere books are sold. And we'll have the link here on the Unity website if you would like to check that out. So we were talking about uh, before the break, and I think people are well-intentioned and just some kind of some of the the horrible things or lack of social skills that you said of, of people trying to help. But really, the best thing you said was just be there, right? Just show up. And are, do you think people are afraid that they have that fear? Well, this happened to her. Maybe it'll rub off on me or some kind of, you know, that yes. it's contagious. Yes, that is a fear. Um, I'll, and I'll give you an example. So when, when Brent died, Jacob was five years old, and I had just gotten involved with a mom's group in San Diego. And now all of a sudden, I'm in this traumatic situation. My husband was missing for two weeks before they actually found his body in the car. So the trauma involved there was immense. And then all of a sudden, now I'm grieving as well. So these folks, half of them, like, what do you say? What do you do? So you say nothing, you do nothing, or you drop a meal and run. Uh, because it's so horrific, and many people can't deal with that, um, especially if they haven't had some sort of experience like that themselves. Um, and also, a lot of these young moms were very scared that, oh my gosh, what would happen if my husband died? It's too much to even think about. Um, so that's the young, you know, young parent community. I also had an 80 year old man at the gym, a former marriage and family therapist. He wanted a copy of my book. I gave him the book. Two weeks later, he actually gave the book back to me. And he said, Susan, I'm a retired marriage and family therapist, but I've also been married for 50 years. And I, this book, was too much for me to read because I don't know what I'm going to do when my wife dies, if she dies before me. And here's a retired marriage and family therapist, right? And I thought that is a perfect example of people being scared, right? Fearful. We're all going to die at some point. It's just when, where, how. And if we can't get real with talking about death, and talking about grieving, we're going to be that much more, uh, we're going to suffer that much more. I mean, you see that in how other cultures handle it. It's so interesting to me where you look at India, where they have, you know, public cremations. Um, I think the city is called Benares, where it's supposed to be a holy event to die there. Like mm -hmm. people save their money so that they can be in this particular place and families are actually a part of that whole process. Not like I'm saying we should have public cremations or anything like that. Certainly not. But just that they're more uh, open and accepting of, of this happening, I guess, where we still have, have a long way to go. Correct. So I wanted to ask about counseling because I know a lot of people think, oh, I don't need a counselor. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll tough it out. What should people look for? in a grief counselor? Because there's good and bad, right? Yes. Well, I kind of say, 
you know, so there's so many types of counselors or therapists. So first of all, just I think um, if people could understand what the differences are in those types of people, um, there everybody has different qualifications, right? We've got marriage and family therapists. We've got licensed clinical social workers. We've got psychologists. We've got psychiatrists. And I and I define all of these terms in the book under Chapter C, counseling. Um, many of these people have an, a, an added expertise in either trauma therapy or animal-assisted behavior therapy with a, a therapy dogs or equine, you know, horses. Um, there are so many types of therapy and therapists, but I would say before I talk about some of those different types, I would say, um, there are certain questions and feelings that people should have or know about when they search out for a therapist. And I always say that, you know, searching for a, a doctor, a therapist, an optrician, you know, any type of doctor or helping professional it's like shopping for pants. You need to try on a few, see if they fit. And if they don't fit, you take them off and move to the next dressing room and the next pair of pants. Um, so I, I do want to encourage people to, to make uh, most therapists have a, maybe half an hour free consultation. You know, talk to them. Do they take your insurance? What is their area of expertise? How do you feel talking with this person? Are you identifying with them in some way? Um, it's a very interesting process and one that can be life-saving if you find the right person. And I think it's okay to shop around. I think some people, and I've seen this just with looking for a therapist, that if you have an experience with someone that's not great, that, oh, it's my fault that this therapy didn't work out or this isn't the right person when, like you said, it might just not be a good fit. So if, if something doesn't work out, you shouldn't discount the idea of therapy entirely because that person just wasn't a good fit. Exactly. And I often say to the, to the folks I work with, you know, if you needed surgery, knee surgery, okay, let's just take that. You, you injured your knee and you need surgery, you would get a second opinion and maybe even a third opinion. You would talk to various doctors to see who's going to be the best surgeon for you. What's the rehab going to be like? Just the whole, the whole package. And that's the same thing that we should be doing when we're looking for a therapist. They're helping professionals. We want to make sure that their expertise matches what we need. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about this concept of spiritual bypassing. I've been reading a lot about this topic recently, and particularly in dealing with grief. I think, is there a balance there? Like, can people use spiritual ideas and practices to hide or, you know, sidestep unfinished business that they should really deal with head on? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, there is a body of research on post-traumatic growth. There are five pillars of post-traumatic growth after a grief or trauma experience. And one of those pillars is spirituality, spiritual deepening or spiritual change. So I haven't met many people who completely avoid grief because of a spiritual reason or excuse per se. But I have met many people who have 
really gone much, much deeper into their own spirituality, or they've completely changed their spiritual or religious angle. And those two things have helped them with their grief. And for me, I was raised Catholic Christian and I dropped all of that in the toilet when Brent died because I was so angry at God and I really had to lose my faith, flush it down the toilet and rebuild from scratch. Right. Cause I'm thinking of things that, that people say around that topic, like, Oh, he's in a better place or, well, everything happens for a reason. And, this was supposed to happen. You just have to find the hidden, the hidden secret behind all of this trauma and, and horrible things. And I know people probably do mean well when they're saying those things, but you know, sometimes it wouldn't ring true for me. I don't think. Right. So I've heard many people, you know, from the from the outside looking in at a griever, it's different, right? We can say. I'm sorry, we can say he's in a better place. We can say she wouldn't have wanted to go out that way. We can say, you know, the child is so happy now. We can say all of those things. But to the person or the family that's actually in the grief and their person is no longer accessible physically, it's obviously a much different situation. So I think maybe the spiritual bypassing I have seen comes from the outside more than the inside. Those of us on the inside cannot bypass with anything. (laughs) We got to dive in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So and looking at some of the resources that you share in the book and looking at a lot of the different books and and some of them I've read, like, of course, um, On Death and Dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler, yeah. And I've been able to work with David Kessler. He's a he's a wonderful person um, during my Hay House days. Nice. I was going to ask you, um, what was a book or resource that you felt really helped you personally? Like for me, I I picked up um, a book by Ram Das called Still Here, Embracing Aging, Changing and Dying. And mm. I wasn't very familiar with with him. And I read that book and it it really resonated with me. He did a lot of work in in hospice and kind of reframing how we, we talk about death. And then I read his other stuff, you know, be here now and things like that. Was there a book that really helped you along the way? There were quite a few, but the very first book was given to me by a friend who didn't know what to do with me or my situation. So she said, here, here's a book. And it was a book she found at a Christian bookstore And at first I thought, I'm going to throw this away because I'm so mad at God. I don't even think there is a God. And I I just couldn't um, even go there. But for some reason, I was called to open it. And now this book has been dog-eared and highlighted and written in year after year. And it's called A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. Now, Jerry Sitzer was a professor, he recently retired, but uh, a professor of um, religion. So he was a, he's a theologian. And he was in Washington State. Um, He and his wife had four children, and they were homeschooling the kids. So they went, I guess the unit of study was Native American culture. So 
he and his wife and the four children and his mother went to a powwow and a weekend of events at a reservation near, near their home. Outside of that, in the evening, they were hit by a car. And in one accident, Jerry's mother, wife, and one of his children were killed. So for me, who knew nobody widowed young, who had no experience with a traumatic accident, who had no tools, really, I thought, um, for me to read the story of a theologian who somehow lost three members of his family and threw his religion in the toilet for a second and rebuilt, that was really powerful for me. And I have come to discover that stories, our stories are so important because that's what connects us. Right. And I'm interested in your reframing of your spirituality because I kind of, I, I find myself doing this now where I'll throw it in the toilet all the time and say, I don't, I don't, there's no God. And then I'll, I'll find myself praying and wanting to pray and wanting to have that connection. And then I'll change my mind again and say, well, maybe there is. <laughs> so yes. I don't, I guess that evolves over time. Uh, but have you been able to rebuild like a, a feeling of, of spiritual connection? Definitely. And it's taken a lot of work and a lot of work for me to show up, but also a lot of work, other people, um, you know, gathering other people who could help me rebuild. Um, and these people have been priests, pastors, rabbis, and mediums. Um, one of the most powerful experiences I had with the spiritual realm was on a retreat in Ojai, California. It was facilitated by a woman who is remarkable. She's an author and a grief therapist. Her name is Claire Bidwell-Smith. And she had a medium with her that weekend by the name of Fleur. Um, they were both based in Los Angeles. And um, my girlfriend, who was also widowed with two kids, said, listen, I think we need to go to this thing. So for four days, we were in Ojai, California with a marriage and family therapist, a medium, and 15 other participants. And I was blown away, not only at the the readings, right? So Brent and all the other, the mothers and the children and all the people that had crossed over into the spiritual world were there. They were there. I mean, it was remarkable. So four days of that. But also I learned that even though I was so angry that Brent died and I thought God let that happen and Brent was at fault, you know, everyone was at fault. I was so angry, but I still had, I still believed. So really in retrospect, I never stopped believing. I was just so livid, kind of like when you're a teenager and your mom or dad says, no, you can't go to that party. You might hate them for a week, but they're still your parent and you they're still there for you. And so that's how I came to slowly come to a place of, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I know Brent is still with us spiritually. Um, 
And I don't know why this happened. I may never, although I do believe I'm doing the work that God intended for me to do. Um, and, and this is a process still, I will still grow and change. I no longer attend church. I used to be, um, a church goer, a choir singer, all of those things. And now I have a much more intimate relationship with God. One that doesn't include a community, oddly enough, uh, one that doesn't include all the singing and all the retreats and all of the things I did before it's quiet and it's intimate, and it's just me and God. A more personal practice yes. has evolved. I'm glad you brought up mediums, and I think that's interesting because I I know a few, and I know that they're very committed to helping people with grief, and I've seen a couple of different demonstrations, and I always thought it was maybe it's just the people are in pain where the first question that they want to know is, is my loved one? Okay. You know, wherever they may be, that's mm -hmm. a fear that people have. And I, I never doubted that they were okay. I always thought that wherever, wherever that is has got to be pain free and, and better. But um, I mean, I'm glad you had a, a good experience. I know there could be some charlatan, you know, mediums out there, but I think, some that are are really gifted to just be more sensitive to be able to to touch that place i th I think that's possible right, and you know I have to say that the world of mediums and psychics and life after death and i mean that was untouched for me I, I had no reason to go there until I was forty one and my entire life turns up uh, turned upside down, so I was running after every experience, every person everything that could possibly help me um, move forward and move with and heal. And so the only reason I went is because I fully trusted Clara Bidwell Smith, who is the marriage and family therapist. And I had gone on another retreat with her two years prior. So I completely trusted her. And because I trusted her, that allowed me to go experience this four day weekend with Claire and medium Fleur. Otherwise, I don't know that I would have, you know, jumped right into that pool. But, um, but I'm glad that I did because I've healed so much more since that time. And that was the reason that Claire said, listen, if you're willing to open to this possibility, come. Right. And just people will come to that if they're, whenever they're ready, I guess to maybe explore that. But I think a lot of healing can take place if people would be a little more open-minded about, you know, maybe exploring that. Cause I, I think some of the people that are doing that are doing some really great work. Yes. And an, another modality you brought up, I guess it's not even really a modality, but I love the chapter on flowers and fragrance because I'm yes. a big scent person myself. And you you described that your son was too. I thought that was cute. He was smelling the the different scents, even to where like any any smell will will take me back. And particularly, there was a certain perfume that my grandmother used to wear, and it was Estee Lauder Youth Dew. I'll never forget <laughs> the smell of that. You know, it's very distinctive. But I think it's interesting to explore this as a healing modality. And I, I thought it was great you mentioned that in the book. Yes, 
you know, as I said, I didn't know what I was doing, how I was going to crawl out of this deep, dark pit. And I did, I did all of this initially for my son. So when we were at my son's therapist, um, she has since retired, but her name is Sue Ann. Um, she was an unbelievable child therapist whose specialty was grief and trauma. And we were in this room full of stuffed animals and puppets and sand tray therapy. Um, he was at his, my son was five and he was washing his hands at the sink. And right above the sink, there were all these shelves full of what I know now were bottles of lotion. And so the therapist invited him to, you know, smell the bottles. And so one by one, he's on his tiptoes and he's unscrewing the bottles and sticking his nose in there and finding a scent. Uh, he didn't like that one. So he put that one back and, you know, he went through quite a few bottles and then she invited him to pick one and take it home with him. So I then learned that scent not only can take us back to pleasant memories or unpleasant memories, but they can help us heal. And so this particular scent, she invited him to put on his hands at the office and then when we got home, he would use that as well, uh, just put a little bit on his arm if he got anxious or afraid. And so then I kind of clicked into, oh, how about some other scents? So I started buying candles made from essential oils. Maybe they were vanilla or chocolate chip cookie scents. And the house just started smelling homey and comfortable. So I really infused scent into our life, not just with flowers, but with essential oils that I have in a diffuser. Um, maybe I'll take a bath with essential oil and lavender. And, and this is a world that was always out there, but I never accessed. I think it's really powerful and people should explore that a little bit because, uh, I mean, I have a diffuser too and and I love it and and different different scents. I just think how interesting it is how a smell can immediately, you know, like if I smell Old Spice, I smell my dad. If I go into a store and I smell it, you know, oh, yes. that's him. Um, colognes, yes. you know, I love citrus or lemon, um, lemon verbena. I love lavender. I think that's the most calming thing of all. Yes. I'll spray it on my pillow. The funny thing is my husband is not such of a scent fan. So he doesn't like any of those scents. <laughs> so we have we have to negotiate that, you know, around the house. But I'll yes. spraying room sprays and things like that. But it is interesting how calming, you know, that that can be. Yes, calming. And also, I learned through two friends of mine. They're actually both widowed, both widowed young, and they started a business called Groves of Zen. So anybody can go there, GrovesofZen.com, and. Uh, my friend Mary is a an essential oil. She's a nurse also. So she infuses essential oils into her patient plan as a nurse. And um, I've had her come work with some of the folks that I do workshops with. And she talks about just the brain changes with, with scent. Um, and so she had us do, I still do this. It's, she calls it the scent tent. So you'd put uh, essential oil of whatever, maybe it's your lemon verbena on your hands, and then you'd make sort of a tent with your hands and you'd inhale that, 
you breathe that in, you know, three to five times, and that scent goes right to your brain and starts changing and calming. And so um, I learned so much from the Groves of Zen people. It's been so amazing to talk with you about all of these techniques and, and coping skills. I really hope people pick this up, even if you're not in this space, you know, at the moment, I think it's really valuable to just have it handy, you know, have it in your library. Right. Like I'm going to keep are, it on my shelf. Right. You know, they're, they're tools. You know, the book is called A Practical Guide for Navigating Grief and Trauma with Intention. But the A to Z healing toolbox is really to reduce stress, anxiety, grief, trauma, but all of the things that we all deal with daily and weekly, um, all of these tools are, are, will reduce stress and anxiety and depression and lift up our, our wonderful levels of the happy hormones. Right. Get that oxytocin going, right? That's right. Isn't that the, hap the happy hormone? Oxytocin. <laughs> yeah, that's the bonding hormone too. So that's what animals are great for as well. Right. Oh, there's there's so many amazing things to cover. Um, it would take like a whole other hour, I guess, to go through the whole part of the alphabet. But I really hope people pick this up and definitely go to the website, A, the number two Z, healingtoolbox.com. Look it up on Amazon and just keep this handy on your shelf. I mean, I have my self-help shelf here and this is going <laughs> to, this is going to be uh, definitely a part of it. And thank you so much, Susan, for talking with me today. You're welcome, Diane. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.